Welcome to the Jesus Chronicles. I'm your host, Sandy Laws, and this is episode number five. Well, on the last episode, I talked about the town of Nazareth, the place where Mary and Joseph lived and where Jesus grew up. Mary and Joseph led a simple life filled with good things like family, friends, faith, and hard work. To me, it's fascinating that of all the people on the earth, God selected two people to be the earthly parents of Jesus from a small town in Israel. In Nazareth, Jesus would have been raised as a traditional Jewish son in a big family living in a tight-knit community. I kind of really love that image of Jesus. I find it so real and relatable. Well, finally, after laying the groundwork in the last four episodes, I'm ready to talk about the story of Jesus' birth, as told by Luke and Matthew in the Bible. In this episode, I'm going to tell you about Luke and his version of the Nativity story. But before I do that, I want to address a question that everyone has. When was Jesus born? And specifically, what year was he born? I'll talk about the designated day and month of his birthday in episode 8. So here's the thing. If you think he was born in 1 AD, you'd be wrong. And here's why. Remember that Jesus was born a Jew. And the Jewish people keep track of the years according to the Hebrew calendar, which was established on the date of creation, according to the Torah. Based on the Hebrew calendar, Jesus' birth happened in the year 3758, give or take a couple of years. So why is our calendar different? Let me explain. Our calendar was developed by an Eastern Orthodox monk named Dionysus the Short in 525 AD. Dionysus wanted to develop a calendar that put Jesus at its center. So he split the calendar into two, designating the years before Jesus' birth as B.C., or before Christ, and the years after Jesus' birth as A.D., or Annoi Domini, Latin for in the year of our Lord. Well, it turns out that Dionysus made a big mistake in his calculation when he set the year of Jesus' birth. He, of course, set it to 1 AD, but that was wrong. To be fair, it really wasn't his fault because he was missing a kind of important piece of information. But we now know that King Herod died in 4 BC, based on archaeological evidence. So both Matthew and Luke write that Jesus was born in the time of King Herod. If Herod died in 4 BC and Jesus was born while Herod was still alive, then Jesus must have been born before 4 BC. Now there is one other piece of information that factors into our calculation of the year that Jesus was born. In Matthew's Gospel, he tells the story of Herod calling for the slaughter of every male child in Bethlehem under the age of two. I'll tell you why when we get to Matthew's version of the story. Well, this means that Jesus could have been anywhere from just 
a few months old to the age of two when Herod gave his horrible order. With these two pieces of information in place, most scholars agree that Jesus was born in the year 6 or 5 BC. So now you know the year that Jesus was born, approximately. I mentioned earlier that only two of the four gospel writers, Luke and Matthew, record the story of Jesus' birth. And here's the thing about their two versions. Where it really matters, Luke and Matthew are aligned in their stories. They both agree that Joseph and Mary were an engaged but not yet married couple, and that Joseph was a descendant of King David, something that is stressed in both accounts through extensive genealogies. They agree that Jesus was conceived while Mary was still a virgin through the power of the Holy Spirit. They agree that Jesus was born during the time of King Herod, and that an angel pronounced the coming of the birth of Jesus to Mary and Joseph. The birth of Jesus occurs in Bethlehem, and the family settles in Nazareth. They agree on all of these critical points. But beyond that, Luke and Matthew go their separate ways in the telling of this story. I was really intrigued that there were two versions with significant variations. So I'm going to walk through the two versions so you understand the differences. Let's get started with Luke's version. Luke and his version of the Nativity Story. Let me give you a little bit of background information about Luke. You already know that he was one of the four Gospel authors, but he was not one of the original Twelve Apostles. He became an early follower of Jesus after his death and resurrection. We know that because he was an avid supporter of the Apostle Paul. It's possible that Paul and Luke first met when Paul stopped in Troas during his second missionary journey. We can't assume that Luke either lived there or was visiting there when they met. Luke was a physician by trade. Soon after meeting Paul, he joined him on his missionary journey together with Timothy and Silas. The four of them set out from Troas by ship to continue to spread the word about Jesus. Luke traveled extensively with Paul, and therefore he had plenty of contact with the early church leaders and the growing community of Jesus' followers. Now, at some point, Luke decided to write down the story about Jesus and the growing movement known as The Way, the early name for Christianity. As an educated man, fluent in Greek, and a capable writer, he was well qualified for the job. And perhaps because he was a doctor and therefore a learned man, he was careful about investigating all the relevant data and all the stories that were told to him by responsible witnesses. He says just that in the intro to his gospel. Luke captured the story of Jesus in his book, The Gospel of Luke, and he also captured the first three decades of Christian history in his other book, The Acts 
of the apostles. It is entirely possible that Luke met with Mary, Jesus' mother, and heard firsthand her story about the birth of Jesus. In fact, his version of the nativity story is told from Mary's point of view. Luke's version has several details that are not in Matthew's that could have come from Mary. For example, Luke introduces us to Zechariah and Elizabeth, Mary's relatives. He also tells the story of the angel Gabriel, who visited Mary to tell her she would conceive Jesus. He mentions the Roman census that requires Mary and Joseph to go to Bethlehem. He also tells the story of the shepherds in the fields and the hosts of angels in the sky. Luke also tells us the one story we have of Jesus as a young adult when he visits the temple at the age of 12 and becomes separated from his parents. All of these details of Jesus' life could well have come from conversations with Mary. The Story of Zechariah and Elizabeth Luke begins his book about Jesus with a story about a Jewish couple, Zechariah and Elizabeth, who live in the hill country in Israel. This story is very important and connects us back to an event that happened nearly 400 years before. So I'm going to take a minute to walk us through it. Both Zechariah and Elizabeth were descendants of the tribe of Aaron. Aaron was the brother of Moses. You know Moses. He was the one who led the Jews out of Egypt, the whole Exodus story with the Ten Plagues, that story that is told in the movie The Ten Commandments with Charleston Heston. Elizabeth and Zechariah had been married for many, many years but were childless. Elizabeth was too old to naturally conceive a child. Only a miracle from God could make that happen. Still, Luke tells us that they continually prayed to God for the blessing of a child. Now, as a descendant of Aaron, Zechariah was called to serve as a priest in the temple in Jerusalem. A godly man, Zechariah was happy to do his duty. Thousands of priests served at the vast temple complex They would rotate in two-week shifts and also assist during the annual Jewish festivals. You might be wondering, why does Luke start his story about the birth of Jesus with a story about Zechariah and Elizabeth? And the answer is that the stories of Elizabeth and Zechariah and Mary and Joseph are intertwined and they have an important commonality That's fundamental to the story of Jesus. Plus, it's a really crazy good story, and it's fun to talk about. So I'll keep going. In 6 BC, Zechariah and Elizabeth go to Jerusalem for his tour of duty. Every day he was there, Zechariah would get up before dawn, take a ritual bath for cleansing, and get dressed in his simple priestly garb. After he got to the Temple Mount, Zechariah would make his way to the Chamber of Hewn Stone, one of the larger gathering chambers in the temple complex. 
This is the place where all the priests would gather every morning to draw lots for their assigned duties for that day. Most of the duties for the priests were pretty mundane, like preparing and offering animal sacrifices all day, and then cleaning the altar, or refilling lamps with oil, lighting lamps as needed, refreshing the burning incense pots around the place, you know, your basic housekeeping duties if you're running a massive temple. Now one morning, Zechariah drew the lot to replenish the incense that burned on the altar in the holy place. Drawing this lot was literally like winning the temple duty lottery. Very few priests were allowed to enter this holy space. It was inside the temple proper, next to the Holy of Holies, the very place where God resided. This was as close as any priest ever got to the Holy of Holies. Only the high priest could enter the Holy of Holies, and that was just one time a year on the Day of Atonement. Zechariah left to collect the incense burned in the holy place, and after getting what he needed, he headed to the temple. Well, let me pause for a minute and describe the holy place. At the center of the temple complex on a hill in Jerusalem was a massive building. The holy place was inside it, together with the Holy of Holies. The two spaces were separated by a curtain. The building itself was 15 stories high, with no windows. When you walked in, you entered into the holy place. This room was long and narrow, 60 feet long and 30 feet wide. Six lampstands sat on each side of the room, and each lampstand had seven candles. This was the only illumination in the room. At the back of the room on the north side was the table of showbread. This table was made of asia wood and overlaid with pure gold, as specified by God in the book of Exodus. Twelve loaves of bread were placed on the table every day in two neat rows. At the very back of the room was the altar of incense, and this was Zechariah's destination. Behind the altar was the curtain, or veil, which separated the holy place from the Holy of Holies. The veil was beautiful, adorned with stars on it, representing heaven. Zechariah's task was simple enough. All he had to do was to replenish the incense that burned continuously, and then bow in prayer, and then leave. The same task had been done by thousands of priests before him, for many centuries. But this day was not like any other day, and Zechariah was not like any other priest. Luke tells us that while Zechariah was performing his task, he realized that he was not alone. The angel Gabriel now stood on the right side of the altar. Here is Luke's account of the story. When Zechariah saw him, He was startled and was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, 
and you are to call him John. He will be a joy and delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Luke chapter 1, verses 12 to 17. I want to point out a couple of things in this passage, and then I'll talk about Zechariah's response. First, I love how Gabriel starts with this super reassuring message. He tells Zechariah, hey, don't be afraid. And even more importantly, your prayer has been heard. And then he tells Zechariah this really astonishing news that Elizabeth will have a son, and their son will be named John. He is, of course, John the Baptist. And as Gabriel says, John was indeed great in the eyes of Jesus. But I'll tell you more about that in the next series, series number two. I also want to point out something special about John the Baptist that Gabriel reveals in his speech to Zechariah. It isn't only that John will be great in the eyes of Jesus, although, I mean, that's really great. It's also what he says about John and the Holy Spirit. Gabriel says that John will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. Now that is totally unique. It sets John apart from every person on the planet. You see, when I became a Christian at the age of 25, I prayed a simple prayer and asked Jesus to forgive my sins and come into my heart. I had heard that prayer many times and also from watching Billy Graham on TV. I was nervous, but I really was ready to commit my life to him. And at that moment, I became filled with the Holy Spirit. But I was most certainly out of the womb when that happened. John, on the other hand, received the Holy Spirit when he was still in Elizabeth's womb. That is a big distinction about John. Okay, back to Zechariah and Gabriel. Zechariah was stunned by what he was hearing. Could this really be happening? He asked the angel, How can I be sure of this? I am an old man, and my wife is well along in years. This is verse 18. Gabriel replies to him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens, because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their appointed time. I love this response from Gabriel. 
First, I love how he declares, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. Like, that's not something you hear every day or any day. And also, he tells us something about his relationship with God, which we are going to talk about in a minute. But he also seems to have some power over the physical abilities of people because he renders Zechariah mute. Like, wow. After this encounter with the angel Gabriel, Zechariah and Elizabeth returned home. As foretold, Elizabeth becomes pregnant with their son, John. They both knew that this child was a gift from God. Elizabeth kept her pregnancy a secret. For the first five months, she remained in seclusion. During her sixth month, she had a visitor from a relative, Mary from Nazareth. I'll tell the story of their visit in the next episode. About Gabriel, the messenger. Before I draw my conclusions about the story of Zachariah and Mary, I want to tell you more about Gabriel. Do you remember when we last heard from this unique creature? It was about four centuries earlier. Remember in episode one when I explained how Gabriel appeared to Daniel to help him interpret his dreams about Israel. Daniel's dream had to do with the neighboring empires that would rule over and control Israel until a messiah a liberator would come to set them free. Well, now Gabriel is back, and he's delivering a message to Zechariah. It's kind of surprising, huh? Gabriel is an angel. That's what the Bible tells us. But what are angels? Let me tell you. Angels are beings created by God, just like humans. But unlike humans, all of the angels were created at once. Angels do not reproduce like humans. Tens of thousands of angels live in heaven, where they serve God in various ways, but primarily as messengers for God and as helpers to humans. In the book of Genesis, angels warn people of danger. In Daniel, they guide people away from evil. In Exodus, angels guide and protect people. Sometimes they appear alone, and other times they appear by the thousands, as they did when God announced the birth of Jesus. Only two angels are named in the Bible, Gabriel and Michael. These two angels appear to have divine directives from God. Gabriel is God's chief messenger, and Michael acts as an angel warrior. Michael is given the title of archangel, a ranking of some sort that seems to put him in a position of authority over other angels. Although Gabriel is not expressly called an archangel, there is every possibility that he is one. Gabriel is a prominent character in the Nativity story. That's partly why I started the podcast in episode one with the mention of the prophets and with the story of Gabriel appearing to Daniel. 
Gabriel brings messages to three of the Nativity characters, Zechariah, Mary, and most likely Joseph. Because we know that Gabriel appeared to Daniel four centuries earlier, it is clear that angels do not age the way that we do. Gabriel serves God in heaven until he is sent on a mission by God. Now that we know more about Gabriel and angels, I'll draw some conclusions about this story. The pregnancy of Elizabeth was most certainly a miracle. Their son John had a special role to fill in the life of Jesus. John was the one who preceded Jesus, preparing the way for his ministry. John was unique from conception. He may be the only person to be filled with the Holy Spirit while still in the womb. God chose two godly people, Zachariah and Elizabeth, as John's parents. Both were descendants of Aaron, thus they represent an important Jewish lineage. This is true of Jesus. God did not shut the Jewish leaders out of the birth of the Messiah. Far from it. And God chose a place of supreme importance for Gabriel to deliver his news to Zechariah. The holy place in the temple had supreme religious significance to the Jews. God chose to reveal his part of his plan of salvation to a Jewish priest in a place that embodies the Jewish faith. God did not exclude anyone from his plan, but included everyone. Gabriel, who is so cool, I think, is a reminder to us that the births of both Jesus and John were part of a universe-wide, divinely initiated plan of redemption. All of God's creatures in heaven were involved in the mission of Jesus from the very beginning. What it means to us today point out the obvious thing. Gabriel is a different creation from us. He may have a name, as all people do, but he's definitely not human. When I wrap my mind around that, I realize that God's creation includes creatures we know very little about, but the angels know about us. So we have definitely answered the question about whether we are alone in the universe. No. As we will see in the second series of the Jesus Chronicles, angels and demons all play a role. We should remember that we are all part of an unfolding epic, universe-wide plan of salvation. And God is in control of that plan, not us. Since God is in control, he can perform miracles whenever, wherever, and for whomever he wants. He simply decides, and he does it. It's not a stretch to think that God can intervene in human history and bring forth people for a specific purpose. Such is the case with many people in the Old Testament, and is the case with John. I'm wowed and awed by the story of God, Gabriel, Zechariah, and Elizabeth, Sometimes it makes me feel small and insignificant, 
until I remember that God created me too. Then I feel special. And that way we are all exactly like Zachariah and Elizabeth, special in the eyes of our Creator. Next time on the JC. Next time on the JC, I'll continue with Luke's version of the Nativity story. Gabriel appears again, this time to Mary, and we will see how her story varies from Zechariah's. Hey, we made it to the actual birth story. Congratulations, and thanks for listening. The Jesus Chronicles is written and produced by Sandy Laws. It is edited by Stacy Sepp. Check out my website at www.thejesuschronicles.org for more episodes, information, research, sources, and illustrations. Thanks for listening.